Think of a medieval romance, and you might imagine brave courtly knights dashing to the rescue of women held captive by monstrous beasts and dragons. But think again. Olivia Colquitt of the University of Liverpool introduces us to the 14th century Melusine story, in which the beautiful woman is not all that she seems, and it is the man who ends up in need of a rescuer. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2018. I will be talking about snake women and crafting power in the medieval French Melusine romances. Um, We'll be taking a look at the woman portrayed here, Melusine, who is a figure shrouded in mystery. The first written record of her story is a prose romance composed by Jean Dorat in late 14th century France. Around a decade later, another French author known as Coudrette transformed this into a verse version called Le Roman de Parfumet. As is fitting of the genre of medieval romance, Melusine's tale involves chivalrous knights, fair maidens, love, betrayal and magic, as we would all expect. And yet certain narrative elements portray influences stemming from much older European folklore, in tales passed down through generations by word of mouth, but whose roots are now difficult to trace. In a romance, we would expect the hero to rescue the damsel from the dragon, but in Melusine, the damsel is the serpentine monster. The medieval house of Lusignan traced their ancestry back to Melusine, claiming this clearly mythological figure as the founder of their powerful royal dynasty. Today we will unravel the legend of Melusine as it appears in late medieval romance and reflect upon the significance of her role as a supernatural founding mother. So, um, just to start with a little plot summary, Melusine is the daughter of a fairy called Pressine and King Elinus of Albany, which is an old name for Scotland. One day, Elinus gravely betrays Pressine, and so she takes Melusine and her two sisters to Avalon, a legendary idyllic isle of Celtic folklore. Living there for several years, the three girls grow into beautiful young women, and upon hearing of their father's betrayal, imprison him within a Northumbrian mountain. As you do. Enraged, Pressine curses each of her daughters. Melusine, as the eldest, suffers the worst punishments. Each Saturday, she is transformed into a serpent from the waist down, and as a monster, she is unable to attain salvation in the afterlife. Yet there is a glimmer of hope. Should Melusine marry a man who will refrain from seeking her out on Saturdays, and so seeing her secretive snake tail, her soul will become mortal and she'll have the opportunity to gain salvation. Enter dashing young knight. Raymond Dam is raised in the household of his uncle, Earl Emery of Poitiers, in France. Whilst hunting a legendary boar in the forest, forest of Colombier, Raymond Dam accidentally kills his uncle and, devastated, rides aimlessly in the forest. He comes across three fairy women beside a fountain, and the most beautiful, Melusine, approaches and comforts him. Melusine tells Raymond Dam that he will enjoy great fortune if he heeds her advice and marries her, with the condition that he swears never to seek her out on Saturdays. And for some reason he doesn't find this suspicious and is eager to agree. <laughs> and after their wedding, Melusine magically constructs the castle of Lusignan, naming it after herself. 
Raymond Dart and Melusine go on to have ten sons, and all but the youngest two possess some manner of monstrous disfigurement, such as enormous ears, three eyes, or my personal favourite, a lion's foot going out of the um, and yet, despite all of these monstrous disfigurements, they are much beloved throughout the land for their strength, nobility, and bravery. A number of their older sons travel abroad to seek land and fortune through conquest, fighting under the name of Lusinian in honour of their mother, winning the territories of Cyprus, Armenia, Luxembourg, and Bohemia. They spread the Lusinian influence across Europe and the Near East. Despite his marital bliss, however, Raymond Dan begins to wonder where his wife goes and what she does so secretly on Saturdays. Quite a few years after the marriage, he only starts thinking, hmm, that was a strange thing to request. <laughs> his brother convinces him that Melusine may be committing adultery and flying into a jealous rage. Raymond Dan grabs his sword and pierces a hole into the locked door of Melusine's private chamber. And this is what he sees. Um, I'm quoting you from my own translations of the original French prose version of the romance. I thought it would be a bit too much to read if I gave you the verse translations too. So, um, Raymond Dan sees Melusine in the tub, who had a figure of a woman and her navel, and was combing her hair. And from the navel downwards, she had the form of a serpent's tail, as large as a barrel for storing herrings and incredibly long, and she was beating the water so much that she made it leap up to the vaulted ceiling of the chamber. Mysteriously, however, Melusine does not leave him at this moment as she said she would when they made the pact. While we are told she is aware of Raymondin's betrayal, she assures him of her love and her continual presence. It is not destined to last, however. When one of their younger sons, Geoffrey Greattooth, aptly named because his disfigurement is a large tusk-like tooth, when he sets fire to an abbey, killing all the monks inside, including his own brother, Raymond Dan furiously blames the terrible crime on Melusine's supernatural identity and publicly defames her thus. He says, Leave her false serpent by God. In the end, neither you nor your birth shall be anything but phantasm, nor shall any child that you have born ultimately come to perfection. How shall they that are burned and scorched reclaim their lives? Good fruit never issued from you. Pretty virulent stuff. And Melusine responds as any other self-respecting woman might. She transforms into a dragon and jumps out of the window. <laughs> Circling around the castle three times, wailing hideously, she disappears into the night. As her curse dictates, she must now roam the earth in this monstrous form until judgment day, only returning to the castle as an omen of imminent death within her ancestral line and the advent of the next year's reign. Okay, so I imagine we've got a fair number of questions. Why a half-serpent? Why do the sons have weird birthmarks? Why does she become a dragon? And that's just to name a few. However, in order to fully appreciate the significance of these elements, I think that we'll first need to reflect upon the unique historical context of the French Revolutionary Romances. So, Two versions of the tale were composed within a decade of each other, around the year 1400, which was a time of relative peace during the tumultuous Hundred Years' War. Although armed conflict between the English and French had ceased, there was still plenty of political strife over territory. Jean, the powerful Duke of Berry, had taken the fortress of Lusignan from the English in 1374, but according to local legend, 
only a descendant of Melusine could be a legitimate claimant to the region. So modern scholarship generally agrees that the Duke commissioned the Romand de Melusine in order to bolster his claims to the fortress and the patrimony of Poitou, using the romance to emphasise his ancestral links to Melusine and the Lusignans. Meanwhile, the patron of the verse romance, Le Roman de Parthenay, has been identified as Guillaume l'Archevêque, or Guillaume de Parthenay, another lord with territories in Melusine's ancestral lands of Poitou. Scholars have traditionally supposed that Guillaume's version sympathised with the English forces and aimed to counteract the Duke of Berry's claim to Poitou. More recently, however, Tanya Colwell has argued persuasively that Guillaume did not seem to have pro-English sentiments at this time, and was more likely preoccupied with the extinction of the Partenay line, which was looming near at the start of the 15th century. So by commissioning the Roman Partenay, Guillaume may have aimed to connect his family and lands to the Melusine legend, thus recording his prestigious ancestry for posterity, as they were running out of male heirs. So, back to our burning questions. Why would anyone want to trace their lineage back to a monstrous half-serpent figure? Well, first of all, is Melusine really a monster at all? In the modern world, we're more comfortable with the idea that outward appearances are not necessarily reflective of inner character. We grow up learning this from the books we read and the Disney films we watch. And yet this was not always the case in the Middle Ages when it was commonly believed that the state of the soul manifested in one's appearance. So basically, if you were hideous, you must have hideous soul as well on the inside. And yet the Melusine romances encourage us to reassess this definition of monstrosity. Although Melusine is cursed to become a half-serpent, it is firstly important that this transformation only occurs once a week. For the rest of the time, she's an incredibly beautiful woman, a beautiful human woman. Moreover, the authors continuously stress Melusine's humanity in all aspects of her life. She is a model wife and mother, caring for, advising and providing for her family throughout the narrative. Through her magical constructions of castles and towns, she is a formidable feudal leader who creates a prosperous realm. Not only this, but she is a kind, just and generous sovereign, and her people lament her intensely upon her departure, despite the fact that they've just seen her transform into a dragon. It is said that when the news spread across the region, the people felt great sorrow and lamented her piteously because she had done many good things for them. And then in the abbeys, priories and churches that she had founded, people began to say psalms and hold vigils and services for the lady. She was mourned by all the people, high and low, noble and non-noble, with tears and sorrow. Perhaps most importantly, the authors repeatedly draw attention to Melusine as a good Christian, both in her devotional practice and in her construction of churches. All of this is contrary to the belief in medieval Christianity that the condition of the soul is connected to appearance. Melusine is first and foremost a good person, and her weekly snake tail seems to have no effect on us. So, if Melusine's hybridity is not a marker of monstrosity, what purpose does it serve in the romances? It may be argued that Melusine's marvellous nature in fact enables her to function as the perfect wife, mother and sovereign, as her consistently positive representation positions her supernatural qualities not in opposition to humankind, but rather as some higher desirable ideal beyond the reach of mortal capabilities. 
Furthermore, by endowing her sons with their own non-human characteristics, their marvellous birthmarks, the author suggests that Melusine's supernatural powers are congenital, and so may be passed down through generations of her descendants. By writing themselves into Melusine's genealogy, the Duke of Berry and Guillaume Marchevesque could therefore purport themselves, firstly, as legitimate claimants to her ancestral territory, and secondly, as potentially possessing supernatural congenital traits that ensure dynastic prosperity. We may discern traces of how each author inscribed their individual patrons into Melusine's ancestry. In the prose form under Melusine, a great deal of attention is devoted to the son's connections to Luxembourg and Bohemia. The aim of this may have been to evoke Jean de Berry's ties to Melusine by his grandfather, who was the King of Bohemia and the Count of Luxembourg. Coudret adds his own unique prologue and epilogue to the Roman de Parthenay, and these emphasize the prestige of the Parthenay line and reinforce their ancestral links to Melusine through her son, Thierry, who becomes the Lord of Parthenay in the Romance. The authors thus serve the socio-political interests of their respective patrons by mapping Melusine's supernatural progeny across these territories and forging connections to a legendary ancestry distinguished for its great rulers and prosperity. And to conclude, the authors of the French Melusine romances appropriate an ancient regional myth and reshape it into a true product of its time. It is far richer and more enigmatic than time will permit me to discuss here today, but I hope that I've shed some light on the medieval perceptions of legendary founding figures. Foundation myths are born out of a universal human desire to know where we've come from, a common fascination for unearthing a collective past that legitimises our place in the world. Melusine is more than a snake woman. She's the mythical founding mother of families across Europe. She is the eternal dragon pretending transferences of power over her ancestral lands. And above all, Melusine is a symbol of our desire to connect with the past in order to understand where we are today and where our paths may lead in the future. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.